The interviews and discussions in this podcast are opinions only and not financial or investment advice. Listeners should obtain independent advice based on their own circumstances before making any financial decisions. This episode of the Stock Insiders podcast with me, Oriel Morrison, is sponsored by Barclay Pierce Capital, a leading Australian corporate advisory and equities trading firm. Focused on your vision, Barclay Pierce specialises in making it a successful reality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stock Insiders podcast with me, Oriel Morrison. Now, today we're talking to Michael Goldberg, the founder and managing director of Collins Street Asset Management. Now, Michael runs a fund which is consistently in the top three performers Australia-wide in the Mercer Investment Survey, uh, the fund delivering over 23% annualised returns over the last uh, three years. Michael, that is, those are some impressive numbers. Welcome. Thanks, Oriel. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So tell us a little bit about you. How did you come to be running the Collins Street Fund? How far back are we prepared to go. Should we go back to my childhood or do you want to start a little bit closer? Yeah, let's, let's go all the way. we got plenty of time. Let's go all the way. All right. No worries. <laughs> Look, I, I think fundamentally um, the spirit of entrepreneurship sort of started two generations ago and my grandparents came from uh, from Europe with nothing but the shirts on their backs and, and instilled in, in my parents, my uncles and aunties, um, the spirit of working hard and and backing yourself and, and really having a red hot crack at whatever it is that you're interested in. And so for my whole life, I grew up with my with my father, certainly in my, in my younger years, um, running what was a little retail empire um, all the way through the 80s and the 90s um, until the recession we had to have. But up until that point, you know, he ran about a dozen retail stores together with my aunt. Um, you know, we were always wheeling and dealing during the, the late 80s, early 90s when the Chicago Bulls were in their heyday. I remember selling um, uh, Michael Jordan T-shirts to my classmates. You know, a little, a little bit later, we used to go and find a, a wholesaler to, to, to buy some basketball cards and then sell the packets at a discount to retail, so everyone, everyone won there. But sort of throughout my whole life, I always saw my father willing and dealing, and we were always encouraged to try and find a way um, to make some money, to, to do something a little bit different, and, of course, to, to work outside of our comfort zone because there's tremendous value to be had from working outside of your comfort zone. My introduction to, to shares really started um, when I was about 13. I received the gift of $100 worth of um, CSR from my auntie, which shortly thereafter led to an introduction to a stockbroker. And I sort of got the sense from my conversations with the stockbroker, and this is before the times of, of discount brokers, of course, where you had to really pay for your advice. Um, but the sense that I got when we had a conversation, we talked about National Australia Bank Bank when they were $7, was that it appeared clear to me that there were there was information that was readily available for those who went to seek it. But it seemed to me the market might not be fully informed on all of that sort of information. And I didn't quite know what to do with it at that time when I was 13 or 14 years old, but it sort of planted the seed of what would later become a significant interest in equity markets and, and seeking out what we now call a an information advantage where you know fundamentally we believe that if you can if you can better understand a business than the broader market then there's an opportunity to be had there and so that seed was really probably um, planted when i was 13 14 years old you know over the years i i I began to invest more and more into equity markets um as as time for university came along the uh founding of of companies like e-trade and comsec sort of popped up and and, and I was concerned that that would put a dent in my in my grand plans and the sorts of career that I wanted to have. I was I was getting myself resigned to the fact that I might end up having to be a disgruntled employee in the back of a bank somewhere on 
on Collins Street. But, um, you know, I went through the process, got my degree from Monash University, spent some time overseas studying in seminary and then came back and, and found a job that was perfect and exactly what I was looking for, despite the fact that uh, it shouldn't well, possibly, in my mind at least, shouldn't have existed at that point with um, with discount brokers. So, yeah, I, I started with a boutique firm out of Melbourne. I had a, a close relationship with the, the CEO, it was essentially him, myself and one other fellow in an office in Turak. So we got lots of attention and lots of training. It was fantastic. I spent um, about eight years with that firm before I decided to, to go out on my own with a, a colleague of mine and, and launch the Con Street Valley Fund. Um, essentially, we were looking to try and build a portfolio or, or, or a fund, the sort of thing that we'd like to invest in ourselves. So, you know, our mandate's a little bit different, our fee structure's a little bit different, but all, the, all, all of those differences come from, I suppose, you know, 10 odd years of feedback and the sorts of stuff we'd like to see for ourselves if we were ourselves investors in our fund. That, those are, that, that's a pretty cool history, um, Michael, when it comes to the share market. And it shows that you can interest, you can get a child's attention in something like equities as young as as young as young 13. So that's a, that's a lesson, I think, in itself. So thank you so much for sharing that, that with us. Now, there are some pretty interesting things that are happening on the market at the moment um, right now. And Michael, many of the experts that I'm talking to are concerned about valuations. They're talking about the fact they're overpriced, that they are expensive, too expensive. What's your view on where we're at on the equity front right now? Yeah, it's it's a good question, but it's also a really tough question. And I'm not sure my answer is going to satisfy you, to be honest. Um, I think, look, if you look at the broader market, certainly as we've come out of the COVID crash, I think markets on a price to earnings basis got to about 22 times. I think they're probably around about 18 and a half times now, which is certainly expensive relative to historical norms, which are around about the 14 to 16 mark. But I'm not sure that we're in normal times. You know, it's certainly very unusual to see interest rates at essentially zero or very close to zero. And the cost of capital, therefore, is lower. So perhaps that partly explains why asset prices can be higher. Um, it's it's a tough one. It, it's a tough one. And and our general sense, at least in this office, is um, if something's too hard to if, if something's too hard to make sense of, that there's not a tremendous amount of value um, ascribing undue energy to it. So if you're asking me about the broader market, um, it worries me. But it's worried me for many years now. And despite my worries, we've we found a way to make you know wonderful returns over the last few years. Um, and I think, despite the fact that the market as a whole might be expensive, there are certainly pockets of companies, pockets of sectors. Um, where where there's clear value, where companies are trading cheaply, either because they're misunderstood, either because they're unloved, or because they're in a sector that the market in general is just not really prepared to um, to pay any attention to. So, again, if you're asking me my thoughts on the market, they make me nervous, but they've made me nervous for the last five years. Um, if you're asking me if there's opportunity out there, I think absolutely there is. You know, you've said before on a, uh, publicly, Michael, that when markets are expensive, you tend to hold more cash. Yeah. So what does your balance sheet look like now? Are you holding more cash? I think we're holding about 20% cash at the moment. Um, if we rewound the clock maybe three to six months, I think we're as high as 35 cash again, which is about as high as we were before the COVID crash. Um, but again, you know, we, we're not investing in the broader market. We only invest in an idea when we can get really excited about it, um, about that individual idea. So when we have good ideas, we'll allocate 5 10% of our capital to that one idea. So to go from 35 to 20% really means that in the last six months, we've, we've had to find two good ideas. And that's certainly, that's certainly been the case. You know, we found a couple of really good ideas that we're excited to support. 
Um, we think that they'll do well despite or irrespective of what the broader markets do. And, um, you know, we won't know until we have the benefit of hindsight, but certainly over the last six years that we've been running the fund, that has played out to be true, that if you, if you identify a good quality company and don't worry too much about what the broader market is doing or the timing of, of, of the outcome, um, you know, you, you tend to do okay. If you can buy, if you can buy a dollar worth of assets for 50 cents, you'll, you'll do okay. Do you consider yourself then a contrarian investor, Michael? I mean, like investors, very famous investors like Warren Buffett and Bill Ackman? Yeah, look, I think if somebody looked at our portfolio, they would say, hey, you guys are contrarian investors because we're happy to, or we're keen even to invest in areas of the market that broader, you know, broader market participants or other investors are not looking at. It's not because we're looking to be specifically contrarian. It's just that we're looking for value. And if the market gets excited about a particular idea, it's unlikely to be cheap. Whereas if the, if, if the markets, for whatever reason, disdain a sector or disdain a company, there's often a good chance that it will, in fact, be cheap. So, you know, we recently invested in a couple of companies that, that, that deal in fossil fuels. You know, fossil fuels at the moment is, is, is you know, it's, it's, it, it's a dirty word. Pardon the pun. Yeah. No, no, one, no one's investing in fossil fuels at the moment. No one's looking at oil and gas or oil and gas services. Um, and so, you know, we've taken a look at that sector and we've, we've identified that while demand will certainly come off in the next 10, 15 years, um, supply is coming off far faster than demand is. And you're going to have this period of time where demand will be high and growing, yet supply is going to come off. So there are opportunities in looking in these places where other people are uncomfortable. So, so just before we go, go and delve further into your investment making process and your investment mm-hmm. thesis, let, let's talk about oil and gas for a moment, the, the companies that are, you know, unloved at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any specific companies within the oil and gas sector that you're looking at? Do you have a, a size? Like, do you go right through the range from small to, to mid to large cap? Yeah, good question. Um, I think I think as we grow, the sorts of or the sizes of the companies that we look at will will change. Um, the, the, the key matter for us is we want, number one, we want the company to be a great business. Number two, we want it to be well-managed. And number three, we want to be able to get sufficient stock to make a difference to our portfolio. Um, so we're currently at around about $150 million under management. And if we're looking to take a 10% stake in a particular company, that means we need to be able to find liquidity of, you know, in, in the vicinity of 10 to $15 million. So that, that will certainly dictate, um, or that will certainly dictate that we can't invest in some companies. But our, our journey certainly in the in the oil space probably started with um, MR, sorry, used to be called Mermaid Marine, Mermaid Marine, I think it's now called MMR Offshore. Um, you know, we, just, we, we discovered this, this business that looked really, really cheap. You know, it, it, it had come off, uh, you know, a significant cycle. You know, the, the oil space, the offshore oil space had peaked in 2014 and had basically been on a, a downwards trajectory until about 2019, where we started to see some green shoots. And then, of course, COVID came and ruined that party for everybody. Um, but we identified this business as being a, a good business, being well run, trading at a significant discount to the value of its assets if it wound it up. Now, of course, you know, it's, it's, it's easy often to identify that these companies are trading at a discount to NTA, but you can't just wind up a company because it's trading at discounts to NTA. You've got all sorts of issues like contracts and, and, um, and, and employment, employment rights and all sorts of things. So, you know, we're not looking at it as a wind up, but we're identifying that this business was exceptionally cheap. Again, trading at about one third the, the value of, of its assets if it were to all go on sale tomorrow. So that sort of, sort of got us interested. And, you know, unfortunately for, for our flagship fund, which, which only invests in, um, in the Australian stock market, there wasn't a lot of ways to gain access or to gain exposure to 
offshore oil, which seemed to be the pocket of most interest to us. So, so, so the management company actually did go and launch a, a special purpose fund, which, which we marketed only to our own investors. And, you know, we identified a number of businesses that had excellent exposures trading at 15 to 25% of replacement cost. And we created a new fund to invest in that space. Um, more recently, and that's, that's all overseas companies. More recently, and back in the Aussie market, you know, we identified that um, Beach Energy looked exceptionally cheap. You know, they came out a couple of months ago with a, with a small downgrade. I think it was about a 4% net downgrade um, on their reserves. And the share price fell from $1.70 down to about a dollar. And now I'm sitting there across from Vast, you know, on, on the opposite side of the desk from me. And, you know, we're looking at each other and saying, look, you know, the oil and the gas space is, 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 is fundamentally an interesting space. You know, in, in, you know it's, it's, it's a cyclical industry where ordinarily you have improving prices. As prices improve, you get new competition coming in. And then, of course, prices start to tip back, uh, tip back down. And then the cycle continues again and again. At the point that we're in at the moment, with the way the world looks, and with with you know ESG being first and foremost on first and foremost on, on many people's minds, um, it's actually really difficult to get funding in a new fossil fuels project. Um, you know, th- there aren't many CEOs out there that are going to have the courage to say to their investors, you know, we've identified this wonderful prospect. We're going to go and pour millions of dollars into a new oil field. It's just very, very difficult to, to bring these projects to market at the moment. And we're sitting here wondering, if that's the case, where's the natural competition going to come to turn the cycle back on its head to, to head back down? So, you know, certainly oil's been on, on, on a, an upwards pro- uh, trajectory since, the, since, since 2020. Um, we think it'll continue for quite some time, and we're not sure how it's going to turn um, if competition isn't coming into the market at the moment, certainly not in the way it has traditionally. Um, perhaps the answer is just a drop off in demand, but again, I think a drop off in demand, a drop off in demand isn't isn't due for any time any time now. Certainly not until twenty thirty four from um, from from the research we've read. Um, so we we sort of had a double tailwind. Sorry to go on and on. Number one, we've got this sector that that is looking attractive just from a from from a macro perspective, and then specifically with Beach Energy, you know. It, it was trading cheaply. It was trading on five or six times earnings. You know, if you look forward to 2022, 2023, it was trading on about one third the price of its competitors on on, on reserves to, to EV basis. So, you know, we we took we took a we took a position in um, in Beach. I think it was late last month, earlier this month, um, thinking that it would take a few months for these things to work out, and um, certainly it will take a it, it'll it'll take some time for it to play out fully, but. There has been some very, very positive news in the, in, in, in the papers and, and from the company specifically, and we have seen a, you know, a really strong rally in that particular company over the last week or two. Mm. Um, you know, Michael, you, you've made some very interesting investment decisions of which you know, the oil and gas beach, companies like Beach Energy, um, which you've just been talking about, are some. Um, one thing that I have taken away from some of the media that you've done is some of the things that you've said again about your investment thesis and and things like your buyers of businesses rather than traders of tra- shares. And then mm-hmm. importantly, that culture trumps strategy when you're looking at investing in business. And that to me is incredibly powerful on so many levels. Can you talk us through that? Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> So it was culture, culture trump strategy. That makes sense. Yeah. What was the first part you said? Well, that, that, well, that primarily, you, you buy as a businesses um, as well, oh, which okay. just simply traders of shares. But culture trump strategy, because when you're working in a business, 
uh, obviously are working for a business, that culture is hugely important for, for yeah. when you go to work every day, you know, the people yeah. you deal with, all of that sort of thing. But when you're actually buying a business, tell me about how culture trumps strategy in terms of the profitability of the business. Yeah. Look, it's a really interesting question. and it's, I've actually been asked related things recently around the, the concept of founder-led businesses. And I think what we've found, and again, it's anecdotal, I, I certainly don't have any stats to back this up, but, you know, we've found that an average business can achieve outstanding returns or outstanding results if it's being run by a good group of people. You know, every every stock, every business that you look at is, is made up of two things. It's made up of the underlying business and it's made up of the people that run it. If you find exceptional people, they can turn an average business into something fantastic. And I think as Peter Lynch often says, um, when you look, if you're just looking at businesses, make sure you find a business that even an idiot can run because eventually an idiot might run it. So, <laughs> so certainly, certainly as, as our, as our approach to investing has, has evolved over the years, we've started to, to allocate much more consideration to the people behind the curtain rather than just the, just the operations in the business. Um, you know, the operations and, you know, uh, headline numbers can be quite easily manipulated with some accounting magic. Um, you know, revenue growth that was there this year can all of a sudden disappear the year after. But if you've got some fundamentally sound people, if you've got some energetic entrepreneurial founders who, who, whose interests are aligned with that of their shareholders, chances are they'll find a way to, to, to push the business through and, 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 to, and to achieve success. So, you know, to, to the first part of your question, you know, we're buyers of, of businesses rather than traders of stocks. I mean, I think fundamentally that, that should be the way it is for everybody. You know, P- people look at the stock market and, you know, I think a lot of people essentially see a casino of, 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 of red and green. You know, what's, what, what's it going to land on tomorrow? And, and, and they, put their, they put their chips on, on green or red in the hope that they're going to make a, a short-term profit. But fundamentally behind all of that noise are some 2,500 operating businesses. And if you're going to put your money into the stock market, you should certainly be understanding, at least our view is, you should certainly be understanding the people and the business that you are supporting. Um, to do anything else just seems like like a gamble. And if, if that's what you're after, you can always go down to Crown um, or Star if you're up, up, up north. So look, our view, our view is that, you know, when we're looking to buy a business, we'd like to do the same sort of research that we would do if we were looking to buy the, the business as a whole. You know, we'll we'll go and we'll visit operations. We'll certainly speak to management. We'll speak to competitors. We'll speak to customers. Um, and if it's a sort of product or service that we can test out, we'll we'll go and we'll test it out. Because when push comes to shove, if we're allocating our capital to this underlying stock, this underlying business, um, we want to know that it's sound and that the people that are looking after it are also going to be looking after us. So, Michael, when it comes to these kind of people. Who are they? I mean, what businesses are you looking at at the moment or have you recently invested in which have these kind of people and teams running the businesses, whatever the size they are? We're not doing a tremendous amount of buying at the moment, um, but the company that probably most stands out, um, you know, a, a team of people who have been very impressed by is a, is a small cap company called RPM Automotive. We, um, we had a conversation with them a few months back and it's a small cap company, so it's, it's hard to buy stock on the market. And we came to we came to terms for a for a placement and also a convertible note subject to shareholder approval, which we're still awaiting for. Um, you know, Clive and Lawrence have been running this business for 20, 30 years. Um, and they've been 
essentially winding in a number of well-established businesses to take advantage of economies of scale, to take advantages of efficiencies, um, and to improve margins. So, I mean, did you want me to walk you through the, the, the four different divisions of the company or, you know, how, how do you want to get down to the nitty gritty? Yeah, <laughs> or, please do. Please do. Walk us, okay. walk us through it. Yeah, okay. So look, Vas, who's our chief investment officer, has spent most of the time speaking with Clive and Lawrence. So he would really be the best person to speak to on, on this front. But essentially, they've got they got four um, separate divisions. One is wheels and tires. So just think about big trucks and farming equipment. Um, they would provide, they import and sell those wheels and tires to, 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 to those sorts of um those sorts of vehicles. They've also got a motorsport company, which basically provides safety equipment for the car and the person. So high performance um, motorsport, motorsport safety equipment. They've got performance and accessory business, which essentially provides, um, what do they call it? Under, under the car sort of improvements. So, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm able to cut myself off here, but I'm so, so not a car person. This is going to come across awfully. Um, <laughs> They provide performance and accessories. So if you wanted to change your tailpipe, if you wanted to improve um, some small function of the car, you would go to, to one of these stores that, that provide uh, provide those sorts of things. And, and the area of the business where they're looking to, to most grow, and which gets us a little bit excited, is what they call a repair and roadside service. So, you know, for, for a regular car, if you or I or Il broke down in the street, we'd call the RECV and would get our car towed to, uh, to our local mechanic and they'd replace our tire for this pop or whatever the case may be. It's a little bit more complicated if you're driving a massive truck or, or farming equipment or, or, or mining equipment. And essentially what uh, what RPM are looking to do and what they currently do do and looking to, to grow that business is they provide a service where they will come out to you to fix and service or replace your tires and wheels. So I believe they also provide it to to um, consumers like, like yourself and myself on a regular car, but certainly the, the vast majority of their business would be trucks and farming equipment and, and mining equipment. So... What they've been doing recently is they've identified that post-COVID, the world is an interesting place for people with capital. And they've been looking to, I suppose, opportunistically buy bolt-on businesses. Now, these businesses, are, I suppose, are being bought at reasonable prices, but that's reasonable given the, the current cost um, for those companies at the moment, um, being small businesses, their costs are normally higher than bigger businesses. And also, of course, coming off the back of, of COVID-19 and the strange world that, that, we're, that we're really still experiencing. So while it looks like they're paying an appropriate price, I think they're paying around about four times earnings for these businesses. Once they get wound in, once they take, you know, once they get the efficiencies from the economies of scales, once they get the synergies implemented in there, all of a sudden those purchases look exceptionally cheap. So as they build out that area of their business, we expect that their that their earnings are going to improve materially, substantially over the next couple of years. Um, like I said, Clive and Lawrence are very, very passionate and very, very capable, and we expect that we'll see you know return on equity going forward being in the in in, in the mid double digits for certain. Wow, it's it's still got a ways to go for sure. And ordinarily, you know, perhaps we'd we'd balk at investing in so small a cap stock as this. But having been introduced to the team, um, we were just so impressed by by their passion and their experience and their willingness to drive things and, and their focus on capital preservation and capital allocation that we said to ourselves, you know what, we're prepared to back this company despite the fact that it's a smaller cap company um, and we were able to negotiate both a regular placement and also a, an issue of a convertible note, which, which should do, do well for everybody. Absolutely. Um, Michael, it's, it's really 
great to have that sort of insight and that sort of depth and detail there. Obviously not the only people with passion out there in the market and in, in companies like these. So um, look, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. No worries, Oriel. Thanks for having me. Michael Goldberg with us there. And of course, thanks to all of our listeners. You are listening to Stock Insiders with me, Oriel Morrison. We'll catch you next time. This episode of the Stock Insiders podcast with me, Oriel Morrison, was sponsored by Barclay Pierce Capital, Australia's leading corporate advisory and equities trading firm. Barclay Pierce Capital provides specialised corporate advisory and equities trading services to privately owned businesses, small to medium-sized public and ASX-listed companies.